Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Fishing Consultant Podcast. My name is Rob Snow White, and for the next hour and a couple of minutes, I'm going to be your host in a conversation all about caddis wise. Recently, I found myself scrolling through Twitter, and it was nice because Twitter hadn't made their crazy update where it looks like Instagram now. And I came across an account, the Caddisfly Collective. I had to find out more and invited them on the podcast. In this episode, I speak with Kelly Murray Stoker from the Caddisfly Collective. This project started in 2021 by Kelly, a PhD student at the University of Toronto in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Her advisor on this and other projects is Dr. Shannon McCauley. We'll discuss all things caddisflies in this fun episode. If you want to learn more or just want to help out, please visit caddisflycollective.com. And this episode about caddisflies is brought to you by our friends at Sea Run Cases. The next evolution of fly rod and reel fishing travel cases. Sea-run fly fishing cases are proper, hard-sided, checkable luggage that gets you to your destination with peace of mind. TSA compliant and airline approved for travel. They're made in Italy. Your case can hold several fly rods up to 9 feet long. Fly reels and boxes, tools, accessories, tippets, flasks, cigars, and your favorite podcasting equipment. If you are hard on your gear like me when you travel, then you need a sturdy vessel to carry your gear. Carry it in style. Carry it without worry. Go to CRONCases.com now and go follow them on Instagram. Now we're going down to Georgia to get some caddisflies. We have Kelly Murray Stoker with us. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Where are we checking in with you today? So I'm just outside of Athens, Georgia little town called Winterville. I spent some time in Athens back in the day. Our friends played in a band called Tibbet Street. Oh, nice. They went to yeah. Athens. They were pretty huge. They used to open up for widespread. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. 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 So I went to school here for my undergraduate and master's at University of Georgia. And that was definitely one of the perks of uh, going to school here was having a great music scene and always going to shows downtown. Absolutely. Yeah. How about the football team? Are you into that much? Um, not so much. I'm, I'm not a big football person. I'm more of a soccer person, I guess. <laughs> Who's your team? Um, so my husband and I, we, uh, we follow Arsenal in the premier league. Um, sadly, they're not doing so well right now. It's fine with me. Yeah. But at least yeah. Atlanta United has been doing good in MLS lately. Yeah. I stopped following DC United. I was down in the drummer circle on the 50 yard line for many oh, years. Oh, gotcha in the bar of Brava and then became a full-time fly fishing instructor. So that went to my weekends. 
Okay. Yeah, Everton's right. doing great. I think we're at three in a row right now. We have some transfers coming on. Uh, but I'm looking forward to Ronaldo nice. coming back to Man U to retire. All right. Yeah, That's be yeah. That should be very, very interesting for yeah. sure. First match That's on the 11th. All right, we could talk football all day. <laughs> um, we also both have colorfully painted rooms. Yours is a forest green. That's right, yeah. Mine's a blue. Yeah, I like that. And we did not determine a celebrity you look like, but you do have... I'd say you're very steelhead fly looking. You've got pink hair with uh, some piercings and blue glasses. Mm -hmm. There's a definite steelhead motif there. We'll go. I like that. All right. So uh, you grew up in Athens area. Tell us about your childhood. Were you always into bugs in nature? So I actually grew up in South Georgia, just about like an hour from the Florida line. So it's very rural place. And I, I did always enjoy being outside. I kind of, took any chance I got to play in creeks and things like that. Um, looking back now, there are probably, you know, polluted city creeks that I wouldn't want to get in these days. I did always enjoy just like kind of looking for the small things, had poles, you know, and, but I, um, and I have the fortune of, of having a stepfather who is an entomologist. And so I was exposed to that a lot growing up. We would help him with some of his research projects, collecting mole crickets. We have a lot of those at our neighborhood pool. Only place okay. you see them around here is at the pool. Okay. I don't know why. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, they're pretty good swimmers, you know, for uh, terrestrial insects. Were you collecting stuff yourself? Did you have your own aquariums in the house? <laughs> no, but I did... I did enjoy doing some insect collecting for, you know, biology classes and things like that. Yeah, but it wasn't really until I got to college where I thought that might be a career opportunity. It was just kind of an interesting, you know, way to spend time. I loved, I was a bio major and I was outside collecting. I still have the largest insect collection in my university's history. Oh, awesome. I like collecting <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I was at a yeah. party on Saturday night and I walked in with some cicadas and Katie dids from outside and people were not happy. I was like, <laughs> so cool and big. And I was I told immediately to go outside with them. Yeah. I, I had an understanding with my college roommates that they had to be okay with some insects in the freezer. <laughs> yeah. We had lots. I feel bad now. It was a lot of monarchs, but we oh. always had just Ziploc bags of dead things in the freezer. And my roommates had that and then the frogs and toads and salamanders and mason jars all uh, over the yes. house and our mm -hmm. pet praying mantis. She oh. would tap the glass with her elbow uh -huh. all night long. Just tap, tap, tap. They hated her. <laughs> yeah, was I had the same thing with roommates. Was it one of the, the really big praying mantis? Big or? green female. One of the grossest gotcha. things I've ever seen. I've seen some gross things. We gave her a tiger swallowtail caterpillar. She Ooh. grabbed it like it was a giant hoagie. <laughs> and took a bite and it popped green and it covered oh. the entire glass. And we all just were dry heaving and gagging. It was <laughs> extremely gross. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Your professors for, probably liked you in college because you were all into the stuff. I, I, I like to think so. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I majored in ecology and entomology and just had a really good time taking all the classes I could about insect natural history and, and where I had to do collections for those classes. And it was a lot of fun. Other than EO Wilson, do you have some favorite entomologists? <laughs> well, I have been really lucky to work with a personal hero, John Morse, who's a professor at Clemson. And he's probably one of the world experts on caddisflies. And he's just just a very nice stand-up person. Um, and he's been really fun to work with. And we've traveled a bit together. We went to Vietnam uh, to collect wow. some caddisfly species and describe new species. We've had a couple of papers out. And that has been just a blast for me. And uh, I really look up to him. So that's been a lot of fun to work with him. What do the folks at the airport say when you've got all these caddis and formalin and fixative <laughs> x-ray? Yeah, usually they just, they just seem like they don't want to know. Um, you know, like you declare um, your specimens, you know, you have to have the proper permits and everything, of course. But I think 
they, uh, it's just, been, it was interesting that most of the time they, they're just like, you know what? I don't, I'm not really interested in this. Like, just please, like, keep going, move take on. your bugs and go. Yes. <laughs> as long as they're dead, they, they don't really care too much. And how did caddisflies become sort of your subject to study? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Cause I really, um, have kind of honed in on them as a, as a research topic. And I really enjoy learning about them. I started in my undergrad working in a stream ecology lab, um, just as like kind of an intern. And then that transitioned to me uh, doing my own research with my own project. And it just kind of happened that there was um, an interesting thing going on with uh, these samples that I was processing that came from streams in Trinidad, where some of the researchers I was working for were looking at uh, interactions within the fish community with guppies and killifish and kind of how they were uh, interacting within the stream, whether they're competing with each other, whether, you know, there was a predator-prey thing going on. Um, and it turned out that the caddisflies kind of benefited from the guppies being present because the killifish weren't eating the caddisflies as much. <laughs> and so so that was that was my project was was looking at kind of those species interactions in the stream. And then um, because the caddisflies were kind of central to that interaction, I just started learning about them more and just thought they were really, really cool as uh, organisms and just learning about their biology and diversity was fascinating to me. And I kept working with aquatic insects in my master's and then and continued that interest in caddisflies. And now it's kind of a specialty for me. I would not have expected Trinidad to have caddisflies. I don't know yeah. why, but not something I would think of. <laughs> no, it's um, it's it's interesting because in the tropical region of this Western Hemisphere, the diversity is not as great as it is um, in more like northern latitudes for aquatic insects, but they are there. But then when you get to uh, the other side of the world, uh, the diversity is quite high for for caddisflies in in the tropical regions. So so that's that's another thing I'm interested with my research is some of those biogeography questions. But I think generally there is an assumption that you know, you're more likely to find the caddisflies, the, the mayflies and the stoneflies in kind of those, those trout style streams, you know, cold water, lots of oxygen. And that's true, but they there are some taxa that, that prefer warmer water. They prefer kind of slow flowing water and you can find them, you know, down into those tropical regions, which um, at, you know, sometimes lower diversity, but they're still there. It's kind of convenient that the places you're going to study these are awesome travel locations. <laughs> Vietnam, Trinidad, anything else? Um, those are the only two places I've uh, been lucky enough to to work internationally. And so right now I'm focusing on U.S. and Canada with with my PhD research. But I'd love to travel some more. So that's been that's been really fun. And is your husband a biologist? Is he into all of this? And does he want to travel with you? <laughs> yeah, he. So we actually met when we were undergrad uh, researchers working in the same lab, and he has he went to Trinidad with me to help me with my project uh, when we were kind of first dating. <laughs> it was a big test to make sure we could get along traveling internationally. But he is also a PhD student at the University of Toronto, and he studies white clover right now. So, so more on the plant side of, of mm -hmm. biology and looking at kind of interactions with bacteria and what's going on in the soil community and, and how those interactions change in the context of urbanization. You two must have a really cool library at your house. <laughs> yeah, where it's it's a bit overflowing with uh, with different books right now. Are but. you familiar with Gary LaFontaine's Caddisflies book? I think I have a a different version. And this one is signed. Oh wow! It says That's may awesome. the hatches always be heavy, Gary LaFontaine. Amazing. <laughs> I've never read it, but okay. <laughs> yes. Something. Yeah. I I think I have like a different softcover version. Yeah. So what brought you from Georgia up to Toronto? So actually it was my husband. He started his his program a year before I did. I was finishing up my master's and he started his PhD. And I thought, well, I'll move up there with him and see if I can find a position. And 
that was close by at a university to, to do my PhD. And I was really lucky. I started talking to the professor, uh, Dr. Shannon McCauley, who studies dragonflies mostly and other aquatic insects. And uh, she mostly focuses on, on pond and, and lake environments. And so I came to her and said, you know, I want to work with you, but um, can I study rivers? Can I study caddisflies? And she was all for it. So here's my uh, dragonfly. Oh, very nice. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. So who's got the best sandwich down in your school in Georgia? And who's got the best sandwich up in your school at Toronto? <laughs> Good question. So so my favorite restaurant here in Athens is The Grit because I'm vegetarian and it's a vegetarian restaurant. And they do this. Um, uh, I don't know if it qualifies as a sandwich. It's more of a wrap. But it's got like tofu and vegetables in like a nutritional yeast gravy sauce. And so that's super good. And it's kind of funny because most of the time I've been up in Toronto has been during the pandemic. And so we haven't had a ton of chance to explore different restaurants. But there's some really great different Asian, you know, food influences in Toronto. It's a great international city. So there's a lot of wonderful Indian food. One of our favorite places to go uh, is a is a vegetarian Vietnamese restaurant. And so <laughs> I love a good, good banh mi. Yeah. Oh yeah. We got really good banh mi around here. Nice. It's, yeah. If, ever, if you have an air fryer, we do either breaded air fried tofu or we'll do like Lay's potato chips crusted Ooh, or nice. um, Tostitos crusted. Air fry them. You'll dip them in marinara sauce and think they're mozzarella sticks. They're awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. We have not gotten on the air fryer train, but maybe we'll have to try that because yeah. that sounds really good. How did you, before, and I want to get into all things Caddis for people that don't know about Caddis, yeah. but how did you get into a consortium of Caddis to start a project in Toronto? Yeah, well, it was it was definitely like not what I expected to do when I first was starting my PhD in terms of kind of crowdsourcing the Caddisfly data and having this project where uh, people are participating from kind of all over uh, US and Canada. Because I had, a, a, as I mentioned, I wanted to study some of the uh, biogeography of, of Caddisfly communities. So how do how does the community structure in a, in a stream differ depending on, um, you know, what what region you're in, what are those kind of like historical influences. So we see some patterns in the, the caddisfly diversity. So when you go up north, you have different families that that dominate kind of in terms of the diversity. So the limnophility caddisflies, sometimes I think they're actually called the northern caddis uh, group. Um, they're quite large. I think sometimes they're also uh, referred to as sedges. They can get pretty big and they do pretty well in um, in colder environments. Would the and size then, have anything to do with that? Just yeah, larger? Not yeah, like it's Bergman's rule, but a bigger... Yeah, yeah. Have. No, it definitely could be because the contrast is kind of true too. I specialize a little bit on a family called hydrotility, which are the micro flies. And they're only a couple millimeters long. So I looked it up in, in the context of fly fishing. So that's a size 24 hook. Um. Yeah. So that would be, <laughs> what do I have here? Hold on. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, Almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, that's like a 22, maybe? 20? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're pretty teeny but they're they're more diverse in kind of the southern regions of of the United States. Um, they have a lot more species. Um, they're found more commonly, and so they so that could be a, a size thing. And so so that you know I'm 
I'm curious about in the context of, you know, environmental change. So how do these different communities that are composed of, of different species that have different traits, whether that's size or, you know, ability to tolerate pollution. So how does that context kind of determine the response to say, you know, the changes incurred by urbanization um, in an area? And so kind of looking at, you know, contrasting regions of, of uh, North America and then seeing how, you know, the communities might respond to environmental change and how that's kind of shaped by historical forces that have have created different communities, if that Excellent. makes sense. Okay. So yes. for people that don't know about caddis, they maybe just stumbled upon this and mm -hmm. they have bugs around their house. How would you describe a caddis fly physically? You might be able to see one at your porch light. They are quite small um, compared to uh, other insects that you'll notice, but they're usually kind of drab, like gray, brown colored, sometimes black, but they, you know, at first glance might look like little moths, but instead of holding their wings out to the side, um, they hold their wings behind their back. So kind of like a, a tent shape and they have really long antennae, um, sometimes longer than uh, the length of their body. So if you see a, a small little insect that looks like a moth, but is holding its wings a little differently and has long, thin antennae that might be a caddisfly at your, at your porch light. Any reason they have longer antenna? No, I don't, I don't think that there's a reason that that's, that's been discovered, <laughs> but. It's more yeah. surface area. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah. what's the biggest caddisfly out there? Yeah. So there's some really large caddisflies in Southeast Asia and they're in the family Friganeidae. And so we also have those caddisflies here. Um, they also kind of prefer colder areas, northern latitudes, and usually they'd be in more lake and pond environments. So you might not run across them um, in streams so much, but those are usually kind of the largest. And I would say they could get up to like 30 millimeters max. And those actually, it, especially the ones in Southeast Asian countries have pretty cool designs on their wings. So they're a little bit more interesting than most of the adult caddisflies that, that we see around here. Yeah, ours are pretty orange brown or just mottled. Yeah, yeah. Nothing fancy. Yeah. What's the smallest one besides the one you've been studying in the South? Is there a smaller caddis? Um, those those are the smallest ones. And so, yeah, I, I might have mentioned their their common name is the micro caddis flies. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's different families. Uh, so that's hydrotility is a family. And then there's different genera within the family and then species within the genera. So some, some genera are larger than others, but they, so they kind of have a range from like five to like maybe a little bit less than two millimeters in length. You've got to have some good eyes and good microscopes. <laughs> That's right. How do you find those in the water? Are you flipping rocks? Um, just yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, a couple different methods. So just general kind of caddisfly larval collections in the water, you can do what's called kick sampling. So you have a net that's positioned downstream of someone who's just kind of disturbing the sediment and the rocks on, on the, on the stream benthos. Um, and so that will, you know, uh, kind of upset different organisms and then they'll flow into your net and then you can put that into a white pan and start sorting through seeing what moves around and that's just kind of all-purpose collecting um, similarly you could just use a, a d-net and, and just kind of disturb either the benthos or vegetation kind of depending on what the environment is like you like you mentioned when i'm looking for something specific then it helps to know you know where it's living and so with those micro caddisflies they often like to kind of attach themselves to rocks because they're usually feeding on algae that might be growing kind of on, on a rock surface or something so 
I'll often pick up the rocks and kind of look along the edges and see if I can see their their cases because they they have kind of an oval shaped uh, case that they build usually that's made out of algae or silk and uh, so it looks just like these little little kind of tabs hanging off the rock that are super small they might be kind of yellow or green depending on what they use to make their case and then I usually have a pair of forceps with me and so I can pick them off and stick them in a vial. With all the time you spend out in the woods and creeks like I do, you've got to find <laughs> some really weird stuff out there that's not related to your job. Um, so I think like probably the weirdest things have, have been other people. I would say. Naked people, people doing laundry. Once I ran into a group of ghost hunters and this was, so when I'm collecting for larvae in the stream, that's in the daytime, but if I'm uh, trying to collect adults, then I use a, a black light and they'll come just fly into that. And so that has to be at night. I was with a friend and we were collecting in part of the Oconee National Forest around Athens, a place called Skull Shoals. And we had the misfortune of having our car battery die. So we we're like waiting for a friend to come and jump us so we could leave this wooded area in the middle of the I've night. I've seen deliverance. I know what's happening yes. in Georgia. <laughs> yes, exactly. So when a, a group of people kind of pulled up in their trucks right where we were, we were a little nervous. But then they jumped out and explained that they were ghost hunters. They had come from Michigan and where we were was supposedly very haunted. And there was a, a ruins of an old mill uh, near the river. And so they were going to go out looking for ghosts. They, they had some night vision goggles. They asked if we wanted to come along with them. And uh, we said, um, that's okay. <laughs> Maybe next time. Yeah. Wow. So stuff like that. Um, there's also a... Um, a Bigfoot museum in North Georgia that we've come across while collecting. That's pretty interesting talking to some of the, the Bigfoot researchers <laughs> that work there. Wasn't there a guy in Georgia like 10 years ago who had one frozen in a deep freeze and it turned out to just be a costume. He filled the deep freeze with water and froze it. I had not heard about that, but I'll have to look that up. I think what, uh, like what, where at least where I grew up in South Georgia, we were kind of famous for this um, this creature called Hogzilla, mm -hmm. um, a, a giant wild hog. <laughs> um, Is that the one that was dangled by the, it's like hanging with the kid next to it from a excavator and it's like <laughs> yeah. that big. Yeah. yeah. We have the bunny man here. He would oh, chop okay. you up with a hatchet. Yeah. The, oh, there's two I different versions of the bunny man, but we now have a bunny man brewery down the street. People keep stealing the sign. Oh. <laughs> that is our local legend up here. Okay. I'll have to look into that. That's interesting. Yeah. But yeah. Have you had any weird encounters out, <laughs> out in the river? I've seen ghost hunters, naked people, fornicators, illegal drugs, gold panning, people doing laundry, people just living, people just sitting there doing nothing. I come across, I mean, I'm in the DC metro area. I do urban yeah. fishing. There's, yeah. there's weird stuff everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm always um, kind of just have that in the back of my mind when I'm out, especially when um, I'm by myself or have uh, undergraduate students with me of just, you know, keeping an eye out for the weirdos. But then I had this realization one time where I was like crouching in a stream kind of at dusk, like uh, at a public park you know, looking for, for caddisflies on the rocks. And I saw like this, this family kind of watching me and I'm like, Oh, I'm the weirdo like <laughs> to them. Right. So I'm thinking the whole time, like I need to, you know, be careful, watch out for the weirdos. It's like, what is this person doing in the Creek? Like just pawing through rocks. <laughs> like I, I used to work for the Georgia department of natural resources. And that was, that was kind of nice because the more unsavory characters that might be out in the woods would tend to avoid us at all costs because we had our official uniforms on. Right. Um, and it's they, usually the homeless guys that come up and start talking. Yeah. Yeah. They're usually the there's, they're out there. there's they're curious. Some, some people, you know, that just kind of hang out at boat ramps and stuff that just want to, to chat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do. I do meet some interesting folks. Mm -hmm, for sure. It's part of the job. Mm -hmm. Why did the larva decide to 
grow up in water in an aquatic environment versus something that would live on land, like say butterflies, they're kind of similar. Their larvae look the same. Yeah. Why did insects decide to invade the water as a, a part of their development? Yeah, that's um, that's a really good question. And, you know, you brought up, they look similar to butterflies, but they actually are very closely related to the order of moths and butterflies. So evolutionary analysis, we call those sister taxa or sister groups. So they're each other's closest relative. Caddisflies are in the order Trichoptera, and then moths and butterflies are in the order Lepidoptera. And so there are a lot of similarities and they have, you know, kind of similar adaptations. There are some aquatic Lepidopterans, some moths that live underwater as well, which is pretty interesting. It's interesting because there's not, you know, a distinct set of aquatic insects. So we, we have a lot of different orders. So Plecoptera, the stoneflies, Odonata, the damselflies and dragonflies, Ephemeroptera, the mayflies. And then you have aquatic species or, you know, sometimes families, sometimes just genera of beetles, Coleoptera, flies, Diptera, true bugs, Hemiptera. So this adaptation to living in an aquatic environment has happened several times in different orders. It's, you know, it's interesting. So there could be just kind of genes that kind of switch on and off that might be conducive to living in the water, you know, because the idea in, in some areas of research is that insects kind of came from, you know, similar origin as crustaceans. So they're, they're related to, you know, crabs and lobster and shrimp that kind of have similar, in a way, body plans using gills and having the exoskeleton. So it just seems like that's, you know, happened many times of the insects kind of going back into the water. And in terms of why, you know, that's that's kind of a question we'll never exactly be able to answer. But the fresh water at a, at a point in history was probably kind of underutilized. And so, you know, in terms of insect diversity. And so if you could live in an aquatic environment, you would, might have less competition from other insect taxa. Um, and so that made it, you know, kind of advantageous to to adapt to a freshwater environment um, for all these different groups. Excellent. And what is the role of the caddisfly in the aquatic? Are they <laughs> there to break down detritus? Is that their role in their niche? Yeah, so that's that's one of them. And one of the reasons why I think there's such an interesting insect order to study is because they actually kind of span, you know, the diversity of roles that that aquatic insects can have in, in the environment. So some are predators, they eat other insects. Some are detritivores. And so especially in, in kind of small headwater streams where you have a lot of kind of forest cover, a lot of leaf detritus going into the stream, um, you find what we call shredders. And so those are caddisflies that will break down that coarse leaf matter into smaller pieces. Sometimes they build their cases out of it and they eat it. And then in doing so, they, you know, they break down that resource, you know, recycle the nutrients and they create smaller particles that filter feeding uh, caddisflies and other filter feeding insects can use. So some like the net spinning caddisflies, the hydrocycids, they uh, collect the detritus that's flowing through the water that might come from upstream shredders, you know, generating that debris. And so, so they're kind of utilizing that resource in a different. And then you have other groups that are more herbivores. So they might eat vascular plants growing in the water. Um, they might eat algae, um, like the microcatisflies I mentioned. So they sometimes will scrape the algae off rocks. And there's a family Glossosomatidae, which are the um, tortoise uh, case makers, I think they're called, because uh, they build a little case out of rocks that is kind of shaped like a tortoise shell. And they get really abundant when there's a lot of algae and they just scrape off the surface. So they're like cows kind of grazing uh, in the in the stream. So they they yeah, really fulfill a variety of roles. You know, they're 
kind of at a range of sizes. And so, you know, just the one order of, of Trichoptera represents a ton of ecological diversity when thinking about, you know, that food web within, within the stream. If somebody wants to go out to collect caddis larvae, what sort of part of a stream or still water should they be looking for? Yeah, so it it depends, I guess, on the taxa. You can kind of find them in a lot of different environments. I think the easiest way to start is being in kind of like a, a shallow, uh, fast-running uh, stream with a lot of rocks on the bottom. And you can just start picking up rocks and, you know, turning them over and seeing what's, you know, kind of crawling underneath. You'll probably find a lot of other in, uh, other insects like uh, mayflies and stoneflies crawling around, some beetles and things like that. But caddisflies are um, often inside their cases. So you kind of have to look for a collection of rocks kind of stuck together or or leaves or sticks uh, making like a little tube shape. So sometimes it's, it's easier to look for their cases rather than the actual larvae because they, you know, use them to kind of hide from predators and, and camouflage themselves. You know, you can look in, in more still water kind of by sifting through sediment. Uh, you talked about people kind of panning for gold, so it'd be kind of a similar <laughs> activity. We sometimes bring sieves out into the river to, to sift through sediment, and because um, some like to burrow down in there, they make their cases out of out of sand particles or, or silt particles. Sometimes they make little tubes through the sediment. There's there's lots of ways, just kind of looking closely at, at the stream and seeing, you know wherever there's some kind of complexity to the habitat. So that could be, you know, snags, wood snags in the river. Sometimes the, the net spinning caddisflies really like those because um, they're a good place to kind of be in the middle of the current and they can spin their, spin their net on the branches of, you know, fallen tree or something like that, as long as they're underwater. But yeah, so there's there's a lot of places you can find them, but just looking for, you know, those different types of, of uh, structure in the stream. Um, but I think turning over rocks is probably the easiest way to, to start looking. Do you have a favorite type of nest or home they build? I once found a little one that was made of all snail shells and they were all oriented in the same direction. Yeah. And I looked at that. I was like, that's cool. Threw it back and was like, I never would see that again. I shouldn't have done that. It's really cool, uh, the just the diversity of cases, and sometimes you can recognize the species by the case um, without having the actual individual larva there, um, because they're very selective in what they like to use. But I think my favorite to find is uh, this this family called Helicocycidae, and they use little grains of of sand and sediment, but they form it like a snail shell. So probably just like what you saw on the case, but they're making their own just out of out of uh, sand grains. And so it's a little you know spiral that they curl up inside. And actually, the first like taxonomist that was trying to you know characterize these actually thought they were snails at first because of of the case that they make. Yeah, and they. They they like ass-flowing water, um, cold streams kind of usually, and a lot of algae to, to feed on. Um, sometimes that that plant podostomum you can find by just kind of dip netting uh, or kick kick netting through those areas of you know fast-flowing water over over rock. Sweet. Do you have any yeah. cool facts or information about the adult life cycle? Yeah. So I guess uh, what's you know, kind of interesting is that they don't live very long as adults. They spend most of their their lifetime as larvae. They can live, you know, a couple of years in some cases, depending on on the species and the location as larvae in the stream. But they don't live super long as adults. Kind of to that effect, they don't have functioning mouth parts for the most part. So they don't really feed very much as adults. All of the energy that they're using to fly around, uh, find a mate, reproduce, lay eggs, in the case of the females, is kind of gained from the larval stage. So they spend, you know, all that time kind of building up energy stores by eating as larvae, and then they use that as adults. Sometimes they'll sponge up a little bit of nectar um, uh, from flowers as adults, but uh, for the most part, they're not eating. That's kind of a contrast with, say, dragonflies, which 
are kind of long-lived as adults. They take a lot of energy because they're flying very far and fast and they're quite big and they're, you know, kind of these apex predators as adults catching insects on the wing. But caddisflies are just, you know, there to kind of make sure their eggs get laid as adults. Let's see, there is, oh, the, the, the females sometimes will actually go back and swim under underwater as adults to lay their eggs. And so that's pretty cool to watch them. There are um, definitely flies made to represent those. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. So, yeah. So um, I, and so just from an entomological standpoint, so a lot of entomologists won't light trap or, you know, use ultraviolet or mercury vapor light to collect insects. Mercury vapor. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, sound good. It's it's pretty powerful, but so these are common, you know, things to a lot of entomologists that study different groups. Usually people won't go out and trap when it's raining because insects aren't flying, but that doesn't apply to caddisflies because, you know, they're kind of adapted to deal with, with water, I guess, you know, as adults even. So they don't mind flying through the rain. So that's just one interesting fact if yeah. you're an entomologist and collecting. And for fly fishing too. Yeah. Sure more than just me just said, wow, I had no idea with a light bulb going off for their next fishing trip. <laughs> Any misconceptions that people have that they think caddisflies attack or fly into their ears at night? Any kind of urban legends about them you've come across? Not so much caddisflies specifically, because I think, mo you know, outside of, of the fly fishing community and outside of the entomology community, it's it's rare to come across people that actually have noticed them because they are so kind of, you know, nondescript. They're, they're small. They're, you know, kind of, they're not very eye-catching. And so it's just interesting to um, to kind of let people know that these animals are, you know, living in the creeks, you know, even though you can't see them, like everyone kind of thinks of, of the fish and the turtles and the frogs and the birds, but there's kind of like this hidden. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know, our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Layer of life with these small insects. And so realizing that, you know, these, these little moth-looking things came from the stream where they're these, you know, important decomposers or, you know, sources of fish food and stuff like that. It's just, it's just cool to to kind of broaden the perspective a little bit of sometimes when, um, you know, most, most people haven't noticed um, because, you know, they're small, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and, and they don't, you know, really affect your daily life. Um, they're not like, you know, threatening in any way, like, a, you know, a singing insect or something, or, you know, they're not pest species. And so they kind of can go along unnoticed, but you know, they don't bite or sting or, or anything. So it's easy not to, not to notice them, but it's, it's just kind of cool to share that. <laughs> do you have them in your labs? And if so, A, do they get out and fly around like they do in my house? The wife would be like, why are there moths? She's, we're watching TV and she's like, and then two, do you ever put colorful sand in there? Like the jewelers, jewelry people to have them oh. make their nests out of colorful rocks. I don't generally keep them in the lab alive because for the, the stream caddisflies, it, you know, they kind of are prefer running water and that's a little bit hard to kind of get the conditions just right in the lab. It's easier to keep the, the lentic ones alive that, you know, like the ponds and lakes and don't mind a little bit of still water. One of my lab mates uh, that I work with, another PhD student, Rosie, she has kept caddisflies and given them little sheets of like vellum paper that are kind of shiny and she makes earrings out of those. And I have my caddisfly earrings that on was, today. I had to ask. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now what's on your shirt? Are those caddis shirts? Sadly, no, I have not been able to find a caddisfly shirt yet. These are just uh, various insects, beetles and um, uh, bees and, awesome. and butterflies. So it's my shirt I wear for some extra confidence. Right. What <laughs> about tattoos? About. Are caddis yeah. tattoos common in your line of work? 
So I don't think I've met someone with a caddisfly tattoo. I have a damselfly tattoo. You're allowed to show is, that? I'd have to like kind of unroll my shirt. Um, my signature fly <laughs> is a damselfly. Okay. The yeah. snow white damsel. That's pretty see. good. Caught a bunch of striped bass on it. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, that's very so, cool. That's bigger than I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, but but that should be on my list to get a caddisfly tattoo because I mean, why wouldn't I if I have a damselfly tattoo right. hanging on my, my study organism? <laughs> my neighbor Beth, she just became a, a tooth cleaning person. She got a big old tooth on her arm. I'm like, that's oh. just, like with the roots and everything. I'm just like, oh wow, <laughs> yeah. Oh, but you mentioned them getting in the house. I it's it's funny when I go collect them. Sometimes you know, there's just they they really kind of come in huge numbers sometimes depending on the environment and you'd be kind of shocked at how many are just like kind of hanging out in you know the streamside vegetation um because they're you know hard to see but i can you know fill up a, a jar you know of uh, half a liter pretty quick having a black light attract them and so then for kind of a few days afterwards like I'll find them in my car because they'll just like latch onto me and then they'll get in my car and they'll just be kind of it's like the cicadas here over the summer yeah yeah they were on everything cicadas had cicadas on them it was I mean I don't know if you've been in the brood x before but you get in the car and they're crawling up your leg you're in the house and they're in the bathroom there's wings in the kitchen Oh my gosh. So and we weren't collecting them. They were just coming at us. I guess from an entomologist standpoint, it was a little unfortunate. People wish that we had more exposure to that in Georgia <laughs> to, to a degree, but they, the brood, brood 10, they um, only came into kind of like the very like uppermost part of like North Georgia, Blue Ridge Mountains. And so I, w- I went up there this summer. And I could, you know, they they weren't super, super abundant. They were still kind of around. You could hear them, but they weren't, you know, to the degree, I think, at, at they were where you are. <laughs> Absolutely nuts. And they're yeah. still bodies and shucks all over the place that have just not, like the base of every tree is a couple inches deep still. Oh, my goodness. Skin. Yeah, it was crazy. Wow. Yeah. Are there any industrial uses for caddis? Say like cochineal, they used to make drinks pink with them and dye clothes. <laughs> And then you get like blister beetle for cantharidin. We use right. the moths for silk. Anything a caddisfly produces that we can use? Not that, not that we know of. I don't think yet. People haven't really been um, putting them to use. They can be somewhat of a pest. They've been known to kind of. I don't know exactly what they're doing, but they kind of get on like you know bridges and things like that, and can kind of chip away at, at, uh, you know, especially wood kind of structures in the water because they can kind of be in big numbers as larvae and either they're like eating the wood or just kind of like, yeah, causing damage to it. So they can be a little bit of a pest in that respect. I, so I did read one paper one time where someone had used caddisflies in a forensic capacity. And so in a case where um, a body had been dumped in the water. They were able to tell how long it had been there because caddisflies had made pupil cases on it. Awesome. So, yeah. I love forensic entomology. That's what I, Yeah. it was that or tropical ecology. And I leaned toward tropics, oh, but gotcha. my neighbor, we were, we had a whole conversation at the pool two weeks ago about forensic entomology. Oh, nice. Yeah, she yeah. had everyone from the pool over last Saturday night. I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> 30 kids in her basement. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, yeah, she's a biologist too. Cool. Yeah, I took a forensic entomology class in college as one of my like major credit classes. And and at first I was like, oh my gosh, why did I do this? Because it was all, you know, about like stages of decomp and but um and maggots. Yeah, but it was really, really interesting. And we had a final project where we had to like kind of stage like a a crime scene with like these pig carcasses so we would lay them out and then we'd go back and collect the insects that had started to colonize yeah so i had to look for roadkill in college during my (laughs) time i would have my girlfriend i'm like jump out with the net i'm getting the jars and she's like it's a raccoon i'm like i don't care 
Oh my gosh, exactly. Um, there's uh, one time my stepdad called me and since he's an entomologist, you know, he gets all of all of the uh, weirdness that kind of comes along with, uh, you know, doing collections. And so he's like, hey, I shot a squirrel for you and I put it in the freezer. And I was like, yes, thank you. And I was able to comb some lice off, off of it. Yeah. yeah. And so I like slide mounted them and and I got, a, you know, uh, just like gushing compliments from my professor that was like amazing. <laughs> like <laughs> Last of these questions about caddis. Being a vegetarian, have you purposely eaten a caddisfly? Um, I've accidentally eaten them because when they do swarm to the light trap, they sometimes it's a little hard. <laughs> to so no, avoid. when you get your air fryer, you're not going to make like caddis cakes. Nah, nah. Everything yeah, in that air fryer <laughs> tastes good, though. My my mentor, Doctor Morse, would say it's not a good night until you eat a few. Um, yeah. You know just breathing them in. Yeah, no, I, I try to avoid all eating all animals, but sometimes it's unavoidable. Right. <laughs> just swarm of caddisflies. Well, let's talk about how listeners can get involved in capturing some caddisflies and then sending you information to work on your project. So what is it you're doing right now up in Toronto? As I kind of started talking about before, I was interested in, you know, caddisfly communities in different uh, regions of the U.S. and Canada. And my initial plan was to just go do different collections myself um, throughout the summer field season. But with the pandemic, there was a lot of restrictions on what researchers could do in you know, a university context. Um, so we weren't allowed to, to travel around and it, you know, it just wasn't very safe to do the traveling, especially last year, but before the, the vaccines were prevalent. And so I started talking to my advisor about maybe we could get people to send us samples from different places um, that might be interested. And we had thought about just, you know, maybe some scientists would want to collaborate. And we were thinking of it a, as a pretty small scale thing, just a few sites. And then we decided to try out a more what we call community science framework where we have, you know, members of you know, the community participate that aren't necessarily scientists by profession, but are interested in entomology or aquatic ecology. Um, we have, you know, some people that are interested in fly fishing that were really excited about the project as well. And we actually thought, you know, this is probably better. You know, one, we get a lot more collections than I could do myself. But two, you know, these collections are coming from people that often have, you know, a lot of experience with the area, sometimes an intimate relationship with the river, and they're able to tell us, you know, kind of some context about the environment, you know, um, have some historical knowledge about how things have changed in their local river kind of region, um, especially since we're kind of interested in changes associated with human development and urbanization. So, so it's been really cool to start collaborating with a lot of different people that are just interested in collecting data themselves. And so we started this project we call the Caddisfly Collective to kind of represent that community aspect of, of the science. And that's our website, caddisflycollective.com. And so for this year, because the summer is, is uh, winding down, We've actually kind of paused on signups for now, but it's been really cool because we've had a lot of interest. Um, we had about 75 people sign up this summer to collect caddisflies. So I mailed them kits with a blacklight and a collecting pan and some preservative. And so they were able to collect data on data sheets that I uh, printed out for them, save all the caddisflies, and then mail them back to me. We're not exactly sure what this will look like in the future, so, but I would say that if anyone's interested, they can follow along on our website or our, yes. our, or our Twitter account, Caddis Project, on Twitter. And what we hope to do is eventually, you know, once all these caddisflies are identified, some will go into museums like the Royal Ontario Museum, where I work with uh, folks there. So we'll have a record of, of these collections scientists can use in the future. But 
also, we'll, we're going to be putting the data from these collections online and hopefully kind of in a, a mapping format so people can kind of click points on the map and see what species were collected at, you know, each river site and kind of, you know, see what places are close to them and and hopefully we'll be able to kind of make some comparisons and actually, you know, have a little bit of a, a diagnosis on, you know, what maybe the, the health of the river might be depending on the caddisfly diversity. Because they're generally pretty, you know, intolerant of pollution. So, you know, high diversity would mean that the, the river site is doing pretty well and low diversity might mean that it's impaired right. um, by different um, anthropogenic Salt. forces. Yeah. I can't believe it's taken this long for people to say, maybe we shouldn't be dumping a hundred pounds or a hundred tons of sodium on the roads every time it snows. Right. Yeah. I can't believe it's taken this long for someone to be like, yeah, that's not good. Yeah. It's really interesting because coming from Georgia, especially South Georgia, I had no experience with that, you know, never snowed. So there was no need for salt. And so moving to Toronto, obviously it's a very different climate. Um, and just seeing the massive amounts of salt that get Crazy. put out. Yeah. And just. You've had shortages where they've had to bring barges in. Wow. Other parts of the world. Yeah. That's, that's just insane. Yeah. My advisor and some of her colleagues and, and students actually study that specifically the effects of salt on uh, aquatic insect life and kind of how it affects, you know, their ecology, their immune system, you know, kind of their functioning, their, you know, when they transition to adults, what that kind of lasting effects are of, of the salt input. And so that's, that's another reason why we wanted to kind of compare these different places, because, you know, every city is going to have different kind of stresses on the environment, depending on what the environmental context is, like, there's actually been some research in uh, more arid re regions of the Southwest where kind of human influences, you know, actually put more water into the system than there was before. You know, naturally there might be only intermittent streams, but um, with like human kind of waste effluent. Golf um, courses. Yeah, exactly. And runoff and stuff like that actually, you know, creates more aquatic habitat. And so that has kind of increase the diversity of some groups of aquatic insects. So, so that's kind of what we're trying to look at is, you know, comparing all these different uh, regional influences and how does that, you know, dictate the, the response to human impact. And your project is too early on for data to show anything. That's right. right. Yeah. So we're just getting in the samples now from this past year. So we, uh, are really excited to start going through those and seeing, um, you know, what uh, some characteristics might be of different spots. And um, but yeah, so it'll take a while to get the results. It'll be a lot of uh, hours for me at the microscope, but I think it'll be really cool. Excellent. Were you able to come up with a caddis joke or pun? I follow <laughs> Gar Lab on Twitter. Ah, yeah. I think that's how I came across you. But there's always just Gar puns. And gotcha. jokes with Dr. Solomon. Okay, so this isn't like the best joke in the world, but like maybe it could go on a popsicle stick. Okay, so why are caddisflies the best prepared of aquatic insects? Why are they the best prepared of the insects? Yeah. But they always have it just in case. <laughs> there we go. Yep. <laughs> All right. My daughter will find it funny. She won't understand it. <laughs> She also would ask yeah. why there were moths flying in the house. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe you left the window open. <laughs> but caddis are fun in the tank. They just sit there against the glass and just do that all day. And I think that we tie all these super intricate flies when it could just be something little wispy on a hook that just does that. Yeah. And probably catch more fish. Yeah, they're probably doing that to yeah. run the, the water past their gills. Yeah. Kind of undulation. They are fun uh, pets, but sometimes you put them in and then they hatch out at night and then you're, they're all gone. <laughs> Gonna have to time them. Yeah. Some people, when they're trying to catch that emergence, um, they have little, little traps that they put that float on the water to get those, those caddisflies as they're coming out. Um, Interesting. I've seen a lot of forums that people say you should not be stacking rocks in rivers because it's bad for the aquatic ecosystem. 
So as an aquatic entomologist, what is your official stance for people that stack rocks in rivers? Is that detrimental to the zoology? Yeah, so I think it's not too much of a concern for the populations of aquatic insects because usually those are quite large. And when you take the rocks out of the water, there are probably different organisms attached to them. But I think the the biggest concern is for more sensitive vertebrates like salamanders that use those rocks as habitat and they're at smaller populations and just get more stressed out by disturbance. And while, you know, a few rocks getting stacked isn't so much of a big deal in the grand scheme of things, um, it's one of those things that uh, when people see it done, they want to do it themselves too. And it's become a thing on social media where people want to take photos as part of their hike of the rocks that they stack, the rocks that they stack. And I think in, in some national parks that it's become a really big problem and they have to take down thousands of, of uh, stacks um, in a year's time just because everyone wants to do it. So I'd probably recommend avoiding that. Even if, you know, one uh, stack probably isn't going to do much to the aquatic insect population, on the whole, it's... Uh, can be detrimental. Should we kick them over? <laughs> That's a good question. I know in some places they actually use them as like trail markers. So they're so they can be used in more of official capacity. Usually that's not the case, but I'd say leave it to, you know, park staff to take care of them. Now wouldn't floods just knock them over anyway? If it floods. Probably to some degree, but, you know, in small headwater streams, there might not be as much flooding going on that could actually redistribute the rocks effectively when it comes to the numbers that, you know, uh, people are actually stacking them in. Okay. And what about my last question for you? Caddisflies in pop culture. Are there any famous caddisflies out there? Have you come across them in movies or TV shows, cartoons, references at all? I don't think I have. Pokemon is kind of famous for mimicking actual insects with the little Pokemon. And there's a lot of cool insects that are represented kind of fictionally. But I like if that was one place a caddisfly would be, I think it would be in that world. But I still don't think there are any. They're just haven't been embraced by pop culture yet. I don't think I could be wrong. Um, And I would love to to see any that have been in cartoons or anything like that, but I have not come across any. I'd ask my brother-in-law at Pixar, but he says they don't take outside uh-huh. suggestions. So I can't get a, a Caddisfly <laughs> Pixar movie going. All right. Oh my gosh. That would be amazing. Just keep trying. Cause I think that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I did see a Caddis license plate once up here. It was actually, I still oh, remember it was, cool. the, I was driving for my interview at Orvis, the fly shop in July of 99. I was like, that's a good omen. Mm-hmm. Anything else I forgot to ask you about caddisflies or you and your studies in Georgia? Well, some fun facts. There's, so I've talked about different families of caddisflies throughout the interview, but there's 52 currently you know, extant families. There's some fossil families that people have found, and that's kind of helped us understand the evolutionary history of caddisflies and how long they've been around. They're the most diverse group of any of the fully aquatic insect orders. So they have the most species compared to mayflies, stoneflies, dragonflies, those organisms. So there's probably about 1,500 species in just the U.S. and Canada. So we have a lot to work with with our project. And one thing that's pretty cool is that in terms of evolution of of the different caddisfly families, some of the major traits that kind of go go along with that is how they build their cases, whether or not they build cases, and what they like to eat. And so there's actually some ideas that you can kind of connect the evolution of caddisflies with the development of um, angiosperms and the proliferation of, you know, vascular plants. And so there's groups of caddisflies that are kind of older lineages that specialize on algae 
which is older than, you know, vascular plants. And so the, the newer lineages have kind of adapted to, to use the, the, you know, leaves coming into the, so that, you know, just kind of difference in ecology reflects a difference in uh, evolutionary history. There is one hypothesis about their development. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Where can listeners find you, the collective research, other caddis gurus on the internet? Yeah. So you can find my project on Twitter at, uh, at Caddis Project or search the Caddis Fly Collective. That's also our website, which will be updated soon to reflect some of the effort we've done this summer. And so unfortunately, we can't take signups now, but um, hopefully in the future, you know, starting next summer, uh, if you follow along with us, we'll have updates posted um, there. We're also um, going to be uh, selling some merchandise. If you like the Catasfly Collective logo design for participants or... Get that <laughs> yeah. on you. Get that logo that's done. Right. That's right. We um, have a tattoo artist that's been on the podcast, Pat Cohen. Oh, cool. Do it. Yeah. Okay. I'll... I'll uh, I'll write that down, but the the proceeds from from the merch are going to a scholarship fund for minoritized students in entomology to kind of provide resources to diversify uh, the field of entomology. So um, we'll have those links up on our Twitter um, pretty soon. I'm, you know, at the University of Toronto. You can check out my advisors page, shannonjmacaulay.com, I believe is her website, and learn about the research our lab does. If there's any potential grad students out there that are interested in doing this kind of work, you can um, apply to our lab. Uh, yeah, I think, was that, was there anything else? You covered um, a lot. If you ever want to come <laughs> back on, just give me a call or any of your, okay. your cohort. Yeah, this was great. I really enjoyed Fantastic. chatting with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you ever pass through the DC area, give me a shout. We'll go kick some rocks over. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. My, I have a cousin that's into fly fishing and lives in, in the DC area. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll need to, to visit. I'm, I'm just a, a very novice um, into fly fishing. Um, That's all right. I enjoy it, but <laughs> well, I'm definitely learning. Let your cousin know that my fly fishing club, the Tidal Potomac Fly Rodders, we get together once a month at a bar in Arlington, and gotcha. I teach a free fly tying class. Okay, will do. TPFR.org. <laughs> yeah. And okay. last week was the original vice president of the club. I'm now the vice president. Nice. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. And thank you so much. You are awesome. No, thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.